Thanks for listening to The First Take, First Word Farmers weekly podcast, looking at the latest news from the pharma and biotech sectors. My name's Simon King. I'm an, an executive editor at First Word Pharma Plus. I have my colleagues, Virginia Lee and Michael Flanagan with me today. It's been a busy week in terms of news um, and a week that's largely been dominated by third quarter results um, with, with earnings season really kicking into gear this week with a lot of the, uh, the large cap pharma and biotech companies reporting. And amongst them was Eli Lilly um, and probably one of the really, or a few of the interesting points that were made um, in Eli Lilly's press release and during its earnings call uh, were focused on its, um, its Alzheimer's disease pipeline um, Michael, a couple of interesting um, announcements made by Lily this week. Number one, the fact that that rolling submission that they've been talking about for Denanumab, uh, seeking an accelerated approval in the US, that's underway, the company said. But also, perhaps, in, in my opinion, slightly more interesting, this head-to-head -head study that they've announced versus Biogen and iSize Aduhelm, which obviously we've spoken about previously, was approved by the FDA back in June, um, is, is a newly marketed therapy. Um, what did you make of those announcements? Yeah, the real interesting thing for me was, you know, the head-to-head -head study pitting Denanomab with, with Aduhelm. Um, I think that'll probably create some buzz, which I think Eli Lilly probably wanted, um, because, you know, they they probably are thinking of this as a, a sort of an easy win because all the data so far in humans and preclinical, it suggests that denanumab is faster and probably more potent in terms of its uh, amyloid beta or beta amyloid reduction um, activities. So, you know, if that's basically the focus of this study, not necessarily, you know, ADAS-COG or functional or cognitive, whatever, it's just focusing on beta amyloid reduction it seems like it, it should be a, a pretty sort of easy win for Eli Lilly, which will then, you know, it'll help them um, in the market because, you know, that's what these drugs are, are right now being approved based on. So uh, I think it's a really kind of savvy, smart move by, by Eli Lilly to run this trial. It'll probably read out right about the time when, you know, they might be hitting the market. So, uh, yeah, it just seems like a smart move. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the timelines, I think there was nothing kind of new disclosed, but it looks like a potential accelerated approval, and obviously that's down to the FDA, will occur in the second half of next year. And as you suggested, you know, the company is, is sort of saying that this data will be in hand for them at or around the potential launch date of Denanumab. What was, I thought was quite interesting as well is that by this point, Presumably, there will be this uh, this Medicare sort of approval, the designation that we spoke about last week, which Biogen is saying is is holding back current adoption of Aduhelm. What was interesting from Eli Lilly's perspective is that they all, they also said that if they get accelerated approval for Den for Denanumab and they have this positive head to head data, they still would expect um, uptake of the drug to be relatively modest until their phase three data read out. Um, and I think they'd have that, again, that would be a, 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 in the next year, 2023. But in some ways, that almost felt like it was a little bit of a, 
maybe a, a little bit of a, a, of a, of a, a criticism of, of where Biogen stands at the moment, because it was almost suggesting, well, look, you know, even if you get this, uh, this designation in terms of Medicare coverage, there are still question marks over the data that's uh, been uh, you know, used to get that drug approved by the FDA. So one other thing that Lily said that of note was that they've halted the development of an, uh, an anti-tau monoclonal antibody that they're working on. And they actually said that they don't think um, antibodies are the way to go um, with targeting tau now. So that's a little bit of a disconnect with, with other companies that are still active in the field. And Michael, I know you wrote this week about um, a completely different approach to treating Alzheimer's uh, disease um, from a smaller biotech company. Can you just sort of give us a little bit of an overview of what happened there with those data? Yeah, so they, this is Cortexime, and they are going, they're trying a, a, new, a new path, essentially, um, a new hypothesis, you know, not the the much talked about and highly controversial uh, amyloid hypothesis or or even sort of the related tau and the and tangles. This is focused on a, a bacteria, which they think is, it has a, plays a causative role, you know, further upstream from these other sort of known targets that have been worked on a lot. And they think that, you know, this um, P. gingivalis bacteria, which is normally associated with dental health, um, sort of sounds like gingivitis, I assume that's what it's uh, associated with, but basically they think that this gets in the brain and causes the, you know, problems that eventually leads to Alzheimer's. So their entire thesis is based on, you know, going after this bacteria. And so, you know, this is obviously a, a new field uh, of study. And, you know, there's sort of a lot of, you know, there's obviously a lot of questions about it, but they, they just reported some, I think it was updated um, GAIN study, which is phase two, three trial. And, uh, you know, basically long and the short of it is that the sort of the speculative nature of this hypothesis, it still looks just as speculative. Like there was, there's some hints that maybe it's doing something, you know, like in a subgroup of patients where this bacteria was identifiable or detectable at baseline, they saw sort of a, a, a suggestion of efficacy, but overall the, um, the small molecule failed and did not show an improvement on either functional or cognitive measures in the overall um, cohort. So, you know, it's one of those things like you sort of expect in the biopharma world where it just sort of raise new questions as opposed to answer them. So, you know, they're, they're going to run a, a phase three trial and they're going to focus on most likely these patients who have this bacteria in the saliva at baseline. And we'll see. It's just the questions remain unanswered and, you know, we'll have to wait another year or two or three and uh, then we'll see. Now, alongside Eli Lilly this week, two of the other large US companies uh, have reported their Q3 um, results. And one of the things that jumped out for me with, with Bristol-Myers Squibb this week was the sort of strong early adoption that we're seeing uh, for Abecma, which is the company's um, multiple myeloma CAR-T therapy. It targets BCMA. Um, Virginia, I know you were looking at this quite closely. 
what are analysts sort of saying about the adoption of this drug? Has it surprised them? Uh, yeah, so the launch of Abecma was a, a bright spot in Bristol's earnings. They reported 71 million in revenue in the quarter program, which was the first full quarter uh, for Abecma. And that, that's the first BCMA CAR T to market for multiple myeloma. And this this sales um, the sales for this quarter were far above analyst estimates, and it really bodes well for demand for this kind of treatment in later line myeloma patients. Um, that said, there are a couple of headwinds working against Abecma in the near future. So management on yesterday's call said that Abecma's ramp up will be limited until the second half of next year due to constraints around vector manufacturing. And then it'll also soon face competition, most likely from J&J's BCMA CAR-T program, Cell to Cell, which has a PDUFA date coming up in late November. Um, so we'll have we'll see what happens there, but in the meantime, Bristol's testing Abecma and earlier lines of therapy as well, which it could give it other avenues for growth. The other thing about Johnson and Johnson being that um, they already market Darzanex in the multiple myeloma space, I guess, and um, when they actually announced their Q3 results last week, I mean, that drug just seems to be, I mean, it must be one of the fastest growing in the industry, but it, it seems to be. Um, racking up increasing usage in earlier lines of therapy and, and key opinion leaders absolutely love it. So I, I guess that's going to be uh, a kind of a potential advantage for Johnson & Johnson as well. Um, we mentioned Merck & Co a couple of minutes ago. Um, I just wanted to sort of shout out, you know, Keytruda sales were $4.5 billion in Q3, the company announced today. I think for the full year, sales of, of the PD-1 inhibitor are going to be about $20 billion, which obviously puts it sort of not too far off of, you know, best-selling drug of all time status. Um, I think AbbVie's Humira is, is knocked around at about the $21 billion mark for the last couple of years. The other thing I just wanted to, to mention that I noted on a couple of the Q3 earnings calls this week were comments from analysts about um, these uh, later PD-1 inhibitor entrants coming to the US market in, in 2022 and beyond. And this idea that they're going to um, be launching at lower prices um, to potentially compete that way. And the, the thing that I thought was most interesting, Eli Lilly has been pretty bullish in the past, sort of talking about the fact that they're going to use price as a lever when they do launch their product but they did also sort of admit this week that in the US market there's only uh, a minority of the market where where pricing lower you know works in the way that that we would you know typically expect it to work and the fact that there are um, you know there are incentives in parts of the US market to use higher price products is obviously potentially going to limit um, the way that companies can use uh, lower pricing to sort of gain share in, in the PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitor market. Just one other thing on Merck that I just noticed before we started recording today, they're saying that the global opportunity for their COVID-19 antiviral could be worth between five and seven billion dollars globally next year alone. And that's even taking into account what they described as tiered global pricing as well. Um, just moving away to finish off, um, moving away from the Q3 results, wanted to flag 
um, a couple of deals that were announced this week. Vertex announcing a gene editing deal with Mammoth Biotherapeutics and Takeda announcing that they're going to acquire a UK company called Gamma Delta. Um, we've seen loads of activity in terms of externalization in the gene editing and uh, cell sort of cell therapy space in the past sort of 12 to 18 months. Um, either of you guys got any particular sort of thoughts on these deals and, and how they kind of fit that landscape? Yeah, I think with the Vertex Mammoth deal, that, that also builds on momentum in the gene editing space in general when it comes to how, how far it's advanced. So this year we got the first look at clinical data from a couple of in vivo gene editing programs from Intellian Regeneron, as well as from Editas. So I think it's, it's interesting that they are now striking a deal for this in vivo gene editing deal with Mammoth. And um, for Vertex, it also builds on the recent spate of gene editing deals that they've done this year alone. So they also did a deal with CRISPR therapeutics earlier this year to develop their CRISPR-Cas9 based therapy for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. And they had a more recent deal with Arbor for ex vivo engineered cell therapies using Arbor's CRISPR, te CRISPR technology. So for Vertex and for that space in general, this is very much in, in line with where companies have been going. Okay. And we also saw announced this week uh, the launch of the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, um, which has been formed by the FDA at the National Institutes of Health and a handful of other institutions and um, gene therapy players. And that includes kind of large cap, you know, biotech and pharma companies and a small, uh, a small number of smaller, more specialist um, companies. You guys have any thoughts on whether you're sort of surprised at this? I mean, obviously, you know, as we've just alluded to, you know, the, the sort of we've had a combination of we've had a few sort of safety concerns. And obviously, there were only two approved gene therapies in the US, but that doesn't seem to have sort of slowed in any way the investment that's being made in this space. And, and I just thought it was quite interesting to see someone like the FDA you know, presumably trying to sort of smooth out some of the complexities that these companies have faced and will continue to face in the future. Yeah, like you said, there's been this backdrop of safety setbacks in recent months, but there also really remains this robust appetite from investors and from big pharma partners for next generation gene therapy programs, um, especially those that are working to address some of the challenges faced by first generation products like immunogenicity and redosing and tissue targeting. And we've been documenting quite a bit of that activity um, in terms of how much funding has been going towards seed and series A rounds for gene therapy startups. I think we've had nearly 900 million raised so far this year for that and about 20 big pharma gene therapy licensing deals and acquisitions year to date with Roche and Takeda leading the way among pharma collaborators there. So we have seen just a lot of activity. And I think um, the interesting thing about this consortium with FDA's involvement with is, is something that really they they need to help move the needle on, which is developing standard approaches for preclinical testing and things like toxicology studies and helping streamline the regulatory pathway for this kind of this kind of a therapy. So um, I think this is really just another marker of the industry's commitment to addressing gene therapies challenges. I mean, we've seen the safety issues, but that's not stopping um, investors and pharma from continuing to pursue that. 
Yeah, and I just add that it just sort of underscores the interest and the potential scene on both the private and public side that is, you know, basically part and parcel to what gene therapy brings to the table. Excellent. Well, thanks, Virginia. Thanks, Michael. And thanks to everyone who's listening. And we'll be back next week.